delighted that you're here. We have a number of visitors with us. We're glad that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us at other opportunities that you have. As already mentioned, among those visiting with us are Harry and Leslie Osborne from Oklahoma City. Harry preaches for the 84th Street Church. I was just with them in July, as you remember me being with them in a um, preacher training program and a lectureship program. It was quite a busy week, and um, Harry's been here a couple of times in meetings, I think, and we're glad to have them with us. He'll be preaching for us this evening, and so I hope you'll be back and hear him uh, this evening at 5.30 as we uh, talk about some more things that have to do with the revelation of God. Hardly a week goes by that I don't have Harry on the phone or he calling me or me calling him and bouncing things off of one another, and he's a very close friend, and I look forward to hearing him this evening. Encourage you to get a Bible and follow along with us as we talk about some things that have to do with living before God and serving God and going to heaven in the after a while. Every person has a conscience, though not everyone really knows what to do with the conscience they have. There are extremes when it comes to dealing with our conscience. By that I simply mean there are those who say, for example, let your conscience be your guide. In other words, if it if it feels okay, then do that. Let your conscience be your guide. If it doesn't bother you, then go ahead and do that. So let your conscience be your guide. On the other side of that spectrum is a concept that go ahead and do things even though it is against your conscience. You say, well, I don't know who would say that. Well, sometimes when someone objects to doing something because that is against their conscience and they cannot conscientiously do it, there would be some who would encourage you to go ahead because there's nothing wrong with that. I don't see anything wrong with that. Go ahead and do that. Even though it may violate your conscience, go ahead and do that. And those are extremes. The word conscience is not used in the Old Testament. I didn't say the concept wasn't there. Or the people didn't have a conscience in the Old Testament. They did, obviously. And the concept is there. But the word is not used, at least in the King James and the New King James translation. But it is used 29 times in the New Testament. So let's talk about your conscience and get an overview of what the Bible says about your conscience. Conscience. Let's start with this. What is conscience? The Bible talks about it, and when the Bible talks about your conscience, what is it talking about? Well, your conscience has to do with this knowledge of right from wrong. Our English word comes from a Latin word which means to know wrong. The American Heritage Dictionary says it's the faculty of recognizing the distinction between right and wrong coupled with a sense that one should, be, should act accordingly. Conformity to one's sense of right conduct. So our English word conscience has the idea of simply knowing right from wrong and conforming to that standard that we know to be the difference between right and wrong. The word from which we, our English word conscience is translated simply means to know together with. A.T. Robertson observes this. In commenting on Acts 23.1, we'll come back to that text a little bit later. In Acts 23, Paul said, I lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. That word translated conscience means joint knowledge, to know together. This prefix con simply means together with, and science has to do with knowledge, and so it's knowledge with, or to know with. What does that mean? Well, it has to do with joining the knowledge of what I should do with the knowledge of what I am doing. And so when I have this knowledge of what I ought to be doing, 
And I couple that with what I am doing, that has to do with my conscience. Vincent observes, it's the fundamental idea of knowing together with oneself. He's commenting on this word. He said, hence it denotes the consciousness which one has within himself of his own conduct as related to moral obligation. He goes further to say, which consciousness exercises a judicial function, determining what is right or wrong, approving or condemning, urging the performance or the abstinence. So it has to do with this knowing oneself and this moral obligation that we have. But let's go further. I know what my conscience is. Let's establish the fact that the Bible teaches that it is not to be our guide. In other words, not saying we're not guided by our conscience, but our conscience alone is not to be our guide. Why do we say that? Because it's altogether possible that I can sin and yet have a good conscience. So if my conscience is to barely be my guide, I'm, I'm to do whatever my conscience allows. And whatever my conscience would approve of, then I'm okay with God. That means then I could be guilty of sin, even though I have a good conscience. Let's go to Acts 23.1. We've already alluded to this passage. This is Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. This is after his conversion to the Lord, but he's including the time before his conversion. And he says, I've lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. In other words, I've always done what I thought to be right. And what I did... I did it with a good conscience. It's including like, things like what? Well, let's go back to Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 for a moment. In Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, this was when he was persecuting Christians. What was he doing? Look at Acts chapter 8 beginning at verse 1. That Paul was consenting to his death. That's the death of Stephen. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church. And uh, look at verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. While he was doing all of that, he said, I've lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. So here's what I'm learning from that. I'm learning that I can sin and yet still have a good conscience. Therefore, I'm concluding the conscience is not to be our guide. Let's go further. And establish the fact that your conscience can be defiled or it can be evil. Let's turn to Titus chapter 1. Look at Titus 1 and in verse 15, I want to look at a couple of passages just establishing that your conscience can be defiled or it can be an evil conscience. Look at Titus 1 and in verse 15, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. It's just possible to have a defiled conscience. That's all we're trying to see at this juncture. More about that in a moment. Let's go to the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 22. It's possible to have an evil conscience. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's go even further. It's established the fact that it's possible to do wrong and at the same time it seemed to be right. We just saw that in Acts 23.1. But here's a couple of Proverbs. I won't look at them both because they say essentially the same thing. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. It seems like the right thing to do, but it's the wrong thing to do. 
So I'm just learning from that. The conscience is not to be our guide. Let's go further. I know what my conscience is. And I know that my conscience alone cannot be my guide and my standard. Let's consider the role of the conscience. What does it do for me? How does it function? Well, it functions from this vantage point. It convicts us of sin because of our knowledge of right versus wrong. Let's turn to John, the eighth chapter. You remember in the life of Christ, there were those who brought a woman that was taken in adultery. And their question was whether or not what they were really wanting was, was Jesus going to take up a stone and stone her like the law had said. And the reaction of Jesus was quite contrary to what they thought. It wasn't quite the reaction. Notice at verse 7, he said, Let him that is without sin cast the first stone. If you want a stone, go ahead, but let you do it. Those that are without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now look at verse 9. When they heard this, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one. What did their conscience do for them? It convicted them of their sin. Their, their knowledge of what they ought to do and their knowledge of themselves caused their conscience to be pricked. Their knowledge caused them to be pricked. Quite often someone may say, you know what, my conscience is bothering me. What does that mean? That means there's something wrong in their life. Their knowledge of what they ought to do, at least what they think they ought to be doing, and their knowledge of self is not in agreement with one another. And so their conscience is bothering them. Let's go to the book of Romans, if you will, chapter 2 now. And notice that it can serve as a preventative to sin. Its function is it prevents sin. My knowledge of what I ought to do, coupled with my knowledge of what I'm doing, can help prevent sin. Romans chapter 2 is talking about the Jews, but he makes a reference to the Gentiles in the middle of that. Talking about the Jews being in sin, chapter 2. Now in the middle of that, in verse 15, verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. What's he talking about? Well, the Gentiles, did not, was not give, they were not given the law of Moses. That's the law he's talking about. That is the Old Testament law. But they adapted the principles of that Old Testament law, and that became a law to themselves. Now look at verse 15. Who show the work, not the law itself, but the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else accusing them. What am I learning from that? I'm learning from Romans 2.15. We're coming back to that in a moment. They were guided by their knowledge of the law. So the Gentiles took the law of Moses and adapted some of those principles, and that came a law to them, and they followed after that law. Though the law wasn't given to them, they adapted the work of the law and put it into their hearts. So they were guided by their knowledge of what the revelation of the law was. And so that caused their conscience to be bothered or not bothered, depending on what they were doing. So I'm learning from that, that it served as a preventative to sin. It keeps us within the prescribed boundaries. Even though Acts 23 and verse 1, Paul's talking about he lived in all good conscience, his conscience was keeping him within the boundaries of what he thought to be right. We see this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in verse 10. We'll say more about the context in a moment. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in verse 10. This is in the context of eating of meat sacrificed unto idols. We'll say more about that in a second. But if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, 
Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things that are offered to idols? So his conscience serves to keep him within the prescribed boundaries. He's not to violate that conscience, and we'll see more about that here in just a second. Now let's talk about the fact that our conscience needs to be educated. In other words, our conscience is only as good as the knowledge that we have. If I don't have knowledge of the Word, I don't have knowledge of the revelation of God, my conscience is not of much value to me. So we must educate our conscience. Conscience is based upon the knowledge that we have. Let's go back to Romans chapter 2 and in verse 15. Where the Gentiles, who were not given the law, had adapted the principles of the law to themselves... So what did I see at verse 15? Though they did not have the law, look at verse 15, they showed the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. Between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In other words, their thoughts, their conscience would tell them this is okay to do, this is not okay to do. So their conscience was based upon the knowledge that they had of that law that had been revealed to them. So conscience is only as good as the knowledge that one has. If they don't have a knowledge of the law, then their conscience is not going to be according to that. Let's go even further. While we're in 1 Corinthians, while we were talking about 1 Corinthians, let's go to the 8th chapter and notice it, verse 7. I want to notice two extremes. One here, and then we'll go to another text. Lacking in knowledge, one who is lacking in knowledge, their conscience will not allow some things. So because of a lack of knowledge... There may be something right to do that someone thinks is wrong. And this is a case in point in 1 Corinthians chapters, chapter 8 and verse 7. What's the context? I said we'd come back to that. The question was about eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul's point is, if you eat meat that has been sacrificed and honored unto idols, unless you're eating in honor to the idol, there's nothing wrong with eating that meat. The fact that it was sacrificed unto idols doesn't do, do anything for the meat. So it's all right to eat that meat. But not everyone has that knowledge. So let's look at verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge that we just talked about, that there's nothing wrong with eating of that meat sacrificed unto idols. Nothing wrong with that. But there's not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol, that is every time they eat that meat, knowing it's been sacrificed unto idols, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. That bothers their conscience. So here's what I'm learning from that. That one was lacking in a specific point of knowledge, and so therefore their conscience will not allow them to do things that are right within themselves. Nothing wrong with eating of that meat. Let's go a step further. We're still talking about educating our conscience. Now Paul's conscience allowed him to persecute Christians until he gained knowledge of the resurrection. He thought anyone following after the Christ was against Moses, was against the law, and against Jewish customs. So consequently, that he ought to persecute those who are Christian. So we thought he was doing what was right. So here is a man doing what was wrong, and yet he thought it was okay to do that. Why? Because he didn't have knowledge of the resurrection at that point. So here is where a lack of knowledge will keep you from doing things that may be right, or may allow you to do things that are wrong. So thus, as we educate our conscience, the conscience is going to change. How so? Things we used to do now bother us. You see, as you grow in knowledge, there may be things that you used to do when you were a new convert, for example, or maybe before you were a convert. 
that bothers you now, that bothers you to do that. Words you used to use, you don't say anymore. Places you used to go, you don't go anymore. Clothing you used to wear, you don't wear anymore. Because as you educated your conscience, things you used to do now bother you. You've educated your conscience. On the other hand, there are things that we thought to be wrong that we realize there's nothing wrong with that. As a case, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14. Here's something that I thought always, I thought this was sinful and wrong to do. But I come to find out there is nothing about that that violates the scriptures. And so as I educate my conscience, my conscience then changes. Let's talk about a weak conscience. And that is our conscience is not to be violated. What do you mean by a weak conscience? Well, when we talk about a weak conscience, we're talking about one who is conscientious. Let's take two passages, for example, and talk about those two passages. Start in Romans chapter 14, and then we'll come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. What's, what's under consideration in the 14th chapter of the book of Romans? It has to do with eating of meat. I want you to notice with me at verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith. What do you mean weak in the faith? But not to dispute over doubtful things. The American standard will use the word scruples. The English standard will use the word in the New American Standard, the word opinions. The idea of faith in Romans chapter 14 has to do with one's personal convictions. I'm not talking about the faith in the sense of the, 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 the objective revelation of God. Nor is it talking about your subjective faith, that is your, your acceptance and your acknowledgement of God and of Christ as being the Son of God. He's weak in his conscience. You say, how do you know? Well, let's go a little bit further. That's at verse 1. Drop down to verse 14. I know that I and am convinced by the Lord that there is nothing unclean of itself, but who, him who considers anything unclean, to him it is unclean. That is, he thinks it's wrong to eat meats. Is there anything wrong with eating of meats? No, there's nothing wrong with it. That's the point of Romans 14. But here is one who will not, uh, his conscience will not allow him to eat meat. Look at verse 2. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he that is weak eats only vegetables. He's not, he's not a vegetarian because he thinks that's healthier. He is eating only vegetables and will not eat meat because his conscience will not allow that. So here's our point. Our point is his conscience is weak. He's weak in faith in that sense. He is not one who has a weak faith. In fact, he very, have, may, very well have strong faith. But his conscience will not allow him to eat that meat. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 now. Very similar to, first, to Romans 14, but this time it has to do with eating of meat that has been sacrificed unto idols. We've already seen verse 8, verse 7, there's nothing wrong with eating of that meat. But if it's eaten in honor of the idol, therefore it's wrong. And so here is one who cannot eat without consciousness of the idol. Every time he eats that meat, he knows it's been sacrificed unto idol, and he thinks he's honoring the idol. So therefore he cannot conscientiously do that. Here's our point. He's conscientious and he has a weakness with reference to his conscience. There is a point of knowledge he does not have. We've already established that from 1 Corinthians 8 and in verse 7. There is not in everyone that knowledge. What knowledge? That eating of that meat sacrificed unto idols is okay. He doesn't have that knowledge. That's the point. So his conscience will not allow him to do things that may be right within themselves. That's what we mean by a weak conscience. 
So here is the matter of eating a meat that's been sacrificed unto idols or eating meat in general. Romans chapter 14 is something that he cannot do. Now let's go to Romans chapter 14 again. And let's establish this principle. Romans 14 and in verse 23. I want us to see that the conscience should not be violated. In other words, the conscience is not my God in the sense that Whatever I can conscientiously do, that's, that's okay, and God's pleased with that. Because I could be doing things wrong like Paul did. But I am to follow my conscience in this sense that my conscience must not be violated. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, but he that doubts is condemned if he eats. Let's stop there and just make, make that point and we'll finish the verse. The one who eats is condemned. I thought it wasn't wrong to eat meats. It's not wrong to eat meats. But the one who doubts is condemned if he eats. That is, if he has questions and he thinks it's wrong. In other words, if it violates his conscience. Remember verse 1? Go back to verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, do not dispute over doubtful things, over scruples or opinions. As per some of the translations we've already talked about. Now let's go further. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. In other words, it's against his conscience. And whatever is not of faith is sin. This passage in its context is not talking about whatsoever is not of this faith is sin. That's true, but that's not what this passage is about. What he's saying in context, that one who eats, or that is, whatever he does, if it's not in harmony with his conscience is sin. In other words, if he violates his conscience, it's sinful. So what's his point? Here is the one who eats meat. Nothing wrong with that. But he just sinned because it violated his conscience. And so I need to be careful when I encourage someone, go ahead and do that. Because I don't see anything wrong with it. But if it's violating his conscience, I'm encouraging him to sin. I'm encouraging him to do what indeed he thinks to be wrong. The conscience must not be violated. Let's go further. Let's talk about a clear conscience. We're just trying to get an overview of the conscience. Talk about a clear conscience. A clear conscience is when our knowledge of self and our knowledge of what we ought to do agree. It's when you have a clear conscience. Let's take a case in point like Romans 8, 16. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the son, children of God. Now remember we started on the note what conscience is. It's to, to know together with. That knowledge of what I ought to do and that knowledge of self, and when they agree, then that's when I have a clear conscience. Let's look at Romans 8 and verse 16. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God, the children of God. How does the Spirit of God bear witness? The Spirit functions through the Word. That is the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6 and in verse 17. And so the Word of God is the sword or the instrument of the Spirit. So the Spirit reveals, tells us what I ought to be doing through the revelation of God. Now my Spirit recognizes what I have done, and that's the knowledge of myself. And when those two agree, then there is that clear conscience. Now what did the Spirit of God say? Well, it says a number of things, but let's take one command, for example. The Spirit of God says, forgive. And when I recognize, you know what, I've done that just like the Spirit of God said, and therefore those agree, therefore I know I'm right with God and my conscience is clear. 
So the Bible talks about a clear conscience. We'll look at some of those passages here in just a second. But what I want you to see is, this is talking about becoming a child of God. Because I recognize what the Lord has told me to do to be saved, and I know I've done that, now therefore I know I'm a child of God. That's the point of Romans 8. But here's the same principle. Whatever the Spirit has said, and whatever I know that I have done, when there is agreement, then I know that I'm right with God, and my conscience is clear. Let's go a step further. The conscience is cleared by the sacrifice of Christ. Were it not for that, our conscience could not be clear. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter. And look at verse 14, Hebrews 9 and in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, there's the sacrifice of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How is my conscience purged and cleared? By the sacrifice of the blood of Christ. Look at chapter 10 and in verse 2. For then would they have ceased to be offered, for the worshipers once purged have no more consciousness of sin. So my conscience is cleared by the sacrifice of Christ. Now when is it clear? When I obey the gospel. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 21. Baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And look at that verse. The answer of a good conscience. And what is that about? Now look at your footnote. Or if you're reading from the English Standard or the American Standard, it may talk about the inquiry of a good conscience. In other words, when I obey the gospel, I'm inquiring of God and seeking from God that I might have a clear conscience. That's what he's talking about. So my conscience is cleared by the sacrifice of Christ, but it's when I obey the gospel. I'm inquiring of God. I want a clear conscience. I want a, I want a good conscience. Now my conscience is bothering me. I'm convicted of my sin. So I obeyed the gospel for what purpose? Well, I want to be saved, but when I'm saved and recognize my sin is taken away, I'm inquiring of God that I want to have a clear conscience now. That's the point of 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 21. Now this clear conscience is maintained by godly living. Now, I know how I obtained that clear conscience, but how do I maintain that clear conscience? Well, let's look at a few passages that mention the clear conscience in the context of talking about living right and doing right before God. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 19. 1 Timothy 1 and in verse 19. This is where Paul is giving his charge before Timothy. But I charge, the char this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made, that you may wage a good warfare. Now notice verse 19. Having faith and a good conscience. Which some having rejected concerning the faith have made shipwreck. Notice the connection between faith. Maintaining that faith and a good conscience. They go hand in hand. It's maintained by godly living. Look at chapter 3 and in verse, verse 9. Holding the mystery of faith. Speaking of elders and deacons, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. Look over to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 3. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. As he serves faithfully, there is indeed that pure conscience. Look at one more passage on that point. We're maintaining, we're maintaining our clear conscience by godly living. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And in verse 16, having a good conscience, well, let's back up to verse 15. 
But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That is, set God first and foremost in your life. There's priority. Because I have that priority, having a good conscience, verse 16, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ. So notice two things in the con. Here's the clear conscience. But before that, there is the dedication to God, the priority to God, and your good conduct. So how am I maintaining that clear conscience? Through godly living. Now let's talk about one more thing in the lesson is yours. Let's talk about the possibility of having a seared conscience. One can reach the point their conscience is seared. But let's establish, first of all, that there is a progression or stages, perhaps. We've already talked about it's possible to violate your conscience. Here's one in 1 Corinthians 8 who cannot conscientiously eat the meat, and he is emboldened, he's encouraged. There's pressure is on around him. Others are eating that meat and encouraging him to do so, if nothing else but by their example. And so he eats and he violates his conscience. It's possible for the conscience to become defiled. We cited that passage earlier, Titus chapter 1 and in verse 15. But let's turn to 1 Timothy 4 and in verse 2. It is altogether possible that one could reach the point that I'm just violating their conscience, and then they make correction. But they have their conscience seared. Look at verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. It's possible for the conscience to be seared. What is a seared conscience? It's a conscience that can't be bothered or pricked anymore. We're coming back to 1 Timothy 4.2 in comment. But I want to establish, first of all, from Hebrews chapter 3, today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Give emphasis to now and today so that your heart doesn't become hardened. The point is, it happens with repeated violations. And so I violate my conscience. And then I violate, and I'm not as bothered as I was the first time. And then I violate it again, and I'm not as bothered as I was the first two times. And then I violate it again, and I'm not as bothered as I was the first three times. And on and on and on. Repeated violations of that conscience. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 4. Having your conscience seared. Vincent observes, the metaphor is from the practice of branding slaves or criminals. The latter on the brow. The deceivers are not acting under delusion, but deliberately and against their conscience. The point I want you to see is it's possible to reach the point that I'm not just violating my conscience now and then and I make correction, but that I go against what I know I ought to be doing. Lowell Nidus suggests that it's an idiom literally to be seared in the conscience or as to one's conscience, to be unwilling to learn from one's conscience, to refuse to listen to one's conscience, to be completely insensitive to it. Here's the point. It's possible to reach the point I'm insensitive to my conscience. I'm not bothered by that anymore. I, I, I was bothered and I thought that was wrong and I knew that to be wrong, but now I'm not even bothered by that anymore. I become insensitive to that. It's possible to reach that point. Well, there's more that could be said about the conscience. But that's an overview of your conscience. We know what it is. 
not to be our guide. We see the role the conscience has. We need to educate our conscience. It's possible to have a weak conscience, and that's not to be violated. We can have a clear conscience, though. And it's possible that my conscience could become seared. Do you have a clear conscience? If you're not a Christian and you're not a child of God, you should not have a clear conscience because there should be your conscience ought to be pricking you with reference to your sin. Your knowledge of what you, the Lord would have you to do and what you have done, don't agree. Your conscience ought to be bothering you. Would you inquire of God for a clear conscience? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism? And that is an answer of a good conscience before God. You're inquiring of God. I want a clear conscience this morning. Before I leave this building, you can have a clear conscience that you know your sins have been washed away. If you're subject to the invitation, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?